You're listening to Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. This week, Taming of the Shrew. Is it really as sexist as everyone says it is? I'll spoil it right now. The answer is yes. For how I firmly am resolved, you know, that is not to bestow my youngest daughter before I have a husband for the elder. I hate men. I pray you, father, is it your will to make a whore of me among these mates? I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace. Why, there's a wench. Come on and kiss me, Kate. So as I always do, just in case you don't remember that day in high school when you read Taming of the Shrew, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. How quick? It's only one minute long. Okay, let's start the timer and go. A drunk named Christopher Sly arrives at an inn, is fooled into thinking he's a nobleman, and sits down to watch a play. In that play, Lucentio arrives in Verona and falls instantly in love with Bianca, who's the girl all the guys want but can't have because her father is a tyrant, and he has decreed that Bianca can't marry until her sister Caterina marries first. Undaunted, Lucentio disguises himself and is hired as Bianca's tutor. Bianca's other suitors conspire to convince Petruchio, an opportunistic cad, to marry Caterina. Petruchio agrees and drags her away. Lucentio servant, disguised as Lucentio, hires someone to pretend to be Lucentio's father so they can offer a dowry larger than they can actually afford, a farce which is complicated by the arrival of Lucentio's actual father. Suffice it to say, it all works out. Meanwhile, Petruchio is taming Caterina by starving her, keeping her awake, and not letting her wear a certain hat. They return to Verona for Bianca's wedding, where Petruchio bets the other men that his wife is the most obedient. All summon their wives, but only Caterina appears and apologizes that women are so simple, even as she attacks the others for their disobedience. Everyone has their happy ending, and if you are wondering whatever happened to Christopher Sly, you might as well stop because he never appears again. The Taming of the Shrew is classified as a comedy, but it is closer in relationship to that perennial problem play, All's Well That Ends Well, another show which has, at its midpoint, a marriage that has nothing to do with love. Sadly, Katarina does not have the bravery to flee from Petruchio as Bertram does from that scheming girl Helena, but both Bertram and Katarina undergo a series of humiliations as they rocket towards their uncomfortable finales. In All's Well That Ends Well, Bertram accepts his marriage with resignation. Poor Katarina has no choice but to do the same. Bernard Shaw, whose opinions on Shakespeare are way too much fun not to quote on a daily basis, called Taming of the Shrew, quote, one vile insult to womanhood and manhood from the first word to the last." End quote. The common critique against Shrew is that it is misogynistic, but Shaw's remark is an arrow that hits much closer to the mark. The Taming of the Shrew is a play that hates men and women alike. Here is not a play that describes the war between the sexes. Rather, it proposes that there was never a stronger reason for us all to go our separate ways. The innocent reader approaching the play in a void would presume that this tragedy of errors is one of the least popular of Shakespeare's plays. The less innocent among us know the truth. Not only is it popular, it has achieved beloved status and has become a common fixture in playhouses and parks. The first question the actor assigned the thankless task of playing Katerina must ask is exactly at what point the girl became the eponymous shrew. It's the 15th century, and a man with two daughters has no choice but to marry them away. Everyone wants Bianca, but there are no suitors for Katerina. So Baptista, tyrant that he is, announces that Katerina must be married first. Why? 
Why were there no suitors for Katerina? Was she already too rough for the men of Padua, or did she simply pale when compared to a sister who perhaps met a more idealized form of beauty? Shakespeare peppers the text with enough clues to suggest that it was the latter. Bianca, whether because of her beauty or a temperament that reminds Baptista of her mother, is her father's favorite. Baptista cares so much about her happiness that he finds her a schoolmaster, and later, when he finds his daughters fighting, he immediately takes Bianca's side, something which Katerina does not let him forget. Will you not suffer me? Nay, now I see she is your treasure. She must have a husband. I must dance barefoot on her wedding day and for your love to her lead apes in hell. <sighs> Talk not to me. I will go sit and weep till I can find occasion of revenge. Katerina's problem is in nature. It's lack of nurture. Unable to earn her father's love, she finds she can't earn the love of any other man either. It's telling that the only time Katerina is not in the presence of men is when she's with Bianca. But in that brief scene, they end up screeching like jealous cats, fighting over the only Tom in town. Believe me, sister, of all the men alive, I never yet beheld that special face which I could fancy more than any other. Million, thou liest. It's not Hortensio. If you affect him, sister, here I swear I'll plead for you myself, but you shall have him. Oh, then belike you fancy riches more. You will have Gremio to keep you fair. Is it for him you do envy me so? <laughs> Nay, then you jest. And now I will perceive you have but jested with me all this while. <laughs> I prithee, sister Kate, untie my hand. Oh, if that be jest, then all the rest were so! <laughs> Shakespeare's Katerina is a virago, not because of any dominating personality, but because she simply feels unloved. Why else would she relent to marry the very first man who appears to want her? Petruchio is her chance to escape Bianca and her merry band of suitors, and Katerina is brokenhearted when, on her wedding day, it appears that Petruchio has become a runaway groom. No shame but mine. I must forsooth be forced to give my hand opposed against my heart unto a mad brain, Rudesby, full of spleen, who wooed in haste and means to wed at leisure. <laughs> I told you, I. He was a frantic fool, hiding his bitter jests in blunt behavior. And to be noted for a merry man, he'll woo a thousand, point the day of marriage, make friends, invite and proclaim the bans, yet never means to wed where he hath wooed. I think Katerina is being sincere here. I think she truly feels ashamed, and she is embarrassed, and she truly feels that she will never be loved again. Her famous speech in the final act has long been the bane of feminists, and plenty of actors have attempted to give the speech an ironic tone. In the famous picture uh, done by Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Mary Pickford winked at Bianca, unseen by Petruchio, during this speech. But the speech makes much more sense if Katerina's efforts are actually sincere. Her jealousy of Bianca is her prime motivation. The final speech is governed by a desire to show all those men who rejected her that Katerina has, in the end, become the better wife. But I also suspect that by now she has drunk too much of the marital Kool-Aid. Hers is the passion of the convert. Having been saved from spinsterhood, Katerina wants very much to believe the things that she says. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labor both by sea and land. Ugh. Well, that's enough of that. 
All this runs contrary to contemporary theater makers who really, really want Katarina to be a proto-feminist who the men don't like simply because she has the audacity to think for herself. I want Katarina to be like this too, but I can find little evidence that Shakespeare wanted it. For one, we never see Katarina alone, and so we have no window into her inner life. We have no textual proof that she actually is a woman who thinks for herself. In every scene we see her in, she is under attack from someone, Baptista, Bianca, Petruchio, his, and or his servants, and it is difficult to know what the real Katarina might be like. She also never expresses any desire for herself. She never implies that she wants anything for herself, and so I have no idea who Katarina actually is. Now this makes her very intriguing for actors, but she's a very dismal romantic heroine for the modern age. There is a habit among theater people to paint Katerina and Petruchio as an early version of Benedict and Beatrice, those warring and witty lovers in Much Ado About Nothing. Now many productions try to play them this way, but it goes so against the play Shakespeare wrote that I am always impressed by the attempt, even if I am underwhelmed by the result. Benedict and Beatrice have known each other for a long time, and have presumably had time to create the playful, antagonistic relationship that has endeared us to them for over 400 years. Their history means it's easy for Beatrice to be secretly charmed by Signor Benedict, and we can believe that she falls in love with him because we can assume that the seeds of that love have been planted long ago. But how can Katerina be charmed by Petruchio, that opportunistic boar who, upon first meeting her, tells her to sit on his lap. Myself am moved to woo thee for my wife. <laughs> moved? In good time. Let him that moved you hither remove you hence. I knew you at the first you were immovable. Why, what's immovable? A joint stool. Thou hast hit it. Come, sit on me. Asses are made to bear and so are you. Women are made to bear and so are you. Padua's suitors are fools, Baptista is a tyrant, and now Petruchio proves to be a lout who believes the testimony of others without ever coming up with a single idea for himself. He has only been told that Katerina is a shrew. In a true romantic comedy, he would have had the decency to try to give her the benefit of the doubt. But that's too much effort for Petruchio, who immediately treats her with the same casual disdain that all the men in the play treat the women. Benedict, for all his fear of marriage, is a soldier and has some degree of honor, but Petruchio cares only for getting rich. He doesn't really care how it happens. His meeting with Katerina is perfunctory. He neither needs her permission to marry him, nor does he even bother to ask for it. Your father hath consented that you shall be my wife. Your dowry agreed upon, and will you, nil you, I will marry you. Listen to that line, your dowry greed on. That's all that matters to Petruchio. He has made a deal, and Katerina is his by right of bargain. If you forget about the induction scene with Christopher Sly, there are only three women in the play, and none of them are treated with any dignity. The women are desired, claimed, married, starved, abused, and ordered about, but they are treated much as the servants are, which is to say, badly. The men who do all this lusting and loving have little to recommend them, for even Lucencio, who is the closest we get to a classic comic hero, treats Bianca as little more than a prize. The men are so selfish that I'm never sure who I'm supposed to care about when I'm watching Taming of the Shrew. Sometimes I root for Lutencio to win, but there are days where I place a bet on Hortensio or Grumio. To be honest, I'm not sure Bianca cares either way, and neither did Shakespeare. As for Baptista, is there a worse father in all of Shakespeare? 
Even Lear learned to love Cordelia in the end. Katerina chastises her father for wedding her to, quote, one half lunatic, a madcap ruffian, and a swearing jack, end quote, but Baptista ignores her. In fact, he rarely talks to her with affection, and once he sells her off to that madcap ruffian, he never talks to her directly again. In the wedding scene, he refers to her in the third person, even though she's on stage. Then, there's that nauseating moment in which Baptista, Grumio, and the disguised Tranio vie for Bianca's hand, and Baptista makes it clear that only one thing matters to him most. His deeds must win the prize, and he of both that can assure my daughter greatest dower shall have Bianca's love. Say, Signor Gramio, what can you assure her? Baptista accepts Tranio's oversized dowry with nothing but dollar signs in his eyes. Bianca is lucky to be rid of him, and so is Caterina. But Bianca will escape with the kindly Lucencio, while Caterina has nothing but a future of doom. There is a very popular conjecture that Caterina loves Petruchio at first sight, and Barton makes it in her introduction to the play in the Riverside Shakespeare, literary mastermind Harold Bloom makes it also. Both Barton and Bloom are much smarter than me, and they have more degrees than I ever will. But I'm going to tell you, I don't buy it. In all of his earliest plays, Shakespeare always made sure that if somebody fell in love at first sight, you always knew it right away. Here's Lucencio upon seeing Bianca. Tranio, I burn. I pine. I perish, Tranio, if I achieve not this young, modest girl. Or look at two gentlemen of Verona. Here's Proteus on looking at Sylvia. Even as one heat, another heat expels, or as one nail by strength drives out another, so the remembrance of my former love is by a newer object quite forgotten. And just so the comedies don't get all the glory, here's the Duke of Suffolk on meeting Margaret in Henry the Sixth, Part One. Oh, fairest beauty, do not fear nor fly, for I will touch thee but with reverent hands. I kiss these fingers for eternal peace and lay them gently on thy tender side. Who art thou? Say that I may honor thee. Catherine makes no declarations about Petruchio, alone or to his face. She says she will honor him, she swears she will obey him, but never in the play does she say she loves him. Petruchio is never once kind to Katerina, and I am stunned when people point at the text and tell me otherwise. From first to last, Petruchio cares only for himself. On arriving in Padua, he has only to hear that Katerina is rich before he decides that he will marry her. I come to wive it wealthily in Padua, he says. If wealthily, then happily in Padua. He wants money, and with Katerina, he gets it. After that, taming her is merely a game with nothing at stake. And this is perhaps the greatest problem in The Taming of the Shrew, greater than even the misogyny and the misandry that poisons its heart. The titular taming is an extended sketch with a single joke. Katerina is mean and Petruchio is meaner, but there's no reason for any of it. In 1999, the play was adapted into the film 10 Things I Hate About You, and here they correct Shakespeare's most grievous fault by having the taming of Katerina be a wager that involves money. Shakespeare was not so clever. Petruchio has his wife and his money by the middle of Act 3. The second half feels like an afterthought. 
In another world, and one I wish Shakespeare had written, Katerina would dress as a boy and escape for parts unknown. Instead, she endures the abuse because, let's face it, she doesn't have a choice. This is the world in which she lives. Katerina is tamed, but she never becomes loved, and it is this that makes the ending of Taming of the Shrew as heartbreaking as that in All's Well That Ends Well. Helena isn't truly loved either, but she's such an ambitious schemer that she brings it on herself. Katerina's only sin was not being as pretty as Bianca. She wants to be loved, but she never is. The tragedy of the shrew would have been a much more appropriate title. Those who assert that Taming of the Shrew is a glorious romantic comedy are responding to individual productions and not the play itself. Now some of Shakespeare's plays are director-proof. You follow the script and it's really hard to make a mess of the Comedy of Errors or Othello. But The Taming of the Shrew is a play so wholly dependent on the cast and crew that no two productions will ever be the same. Anne Barton writes, quote, No other play depends so heavily upon theatrical realization as opposed to mere reading. End quote. There have been productions of the play in which I have not been thoroughly disgusted by Taming of the Shrew, and I cite this as no small victory for the people behind the scenes. But the important thing to remember is that while Taming the Shrew is a comedy, it is not a romantic comedy. Let us not pretend that Katerina and Petruchio are in love, or that this is a show you should ever take someone to if you're on your first date. The best versions of this play are actually the adaptations, in which people have managed to change Shakespeare and correct his mistakes. Take a look at the 1948 Cole Porter musical, Kiss Me Kate. I've come to wive it wealthily in Padua. If wealthily, then happily in Padua. If my wife has a bag of gold, do I care if the bag be old? I've come to wive it wealthily in Padua. And the 1999 comedy, Ten Things I Hate About You. Bianca Stratford is the most popular girl at Padua High. You're asking me out? I'm down. I've got the 411. And you are not going out and getting jiggy with some boy. I don't care how dope his ride is. Her sister, Kat, is something else entirely. People perceive you as somewhat tempestuous. Hey, a switch is the term used most often. The only thing they have in common... I am the only girl in school who's not dating. Oh, no, you're not. Your sister doesn't date. ...is one simple rule. Okay, you can date when she does. But she's a mutant. What if she never dates? Then you'll never date. Oh, I like that. There, Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger are warring lovers who, unlike in Shakespeare's play, actually fall in love. I remain doubtful that a fateful rendering of Taming of the Shrew can ever truly be a romantic glory, but I really like Kiss Me Kate. Ten Things I Hate About You is the romantic comedy that everyone wants Taming of the Shrew to be. And what I think this means, and how I think this speaks to Taming of the Shrew's popularity, is that there is such potential in the story's central conceit that you can't blame people for wanting to revisit it time and time again. The Taming of the Shrew may not be Shakespeare's greatest work, but its ability to be bent to the wills of the people who perform it is really what has turned it into the one truly memorable Shakespearean play. I would go so far as to say that performing it should be a rite of passage for anyone seriously considering a career on the stage. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Still interested in watching a production of Taming of the Shrew? Here's some thoughts.
So I've already mentioned the two best adaptations of Taming of the Shrew, and honestly, if you never went further than Kiss Me Kate and 10 Things I Hate About You, no one except your English teacher would ever blame you. Uh, the movie version of Kiss Me Kate was released in 1958, and it's one of the best movie musicals ever made. And I say this even though I know that there's some fan of Singing in the Rain who is going to try to stab me with their umbrella the next time we're on the street. See, in Kiss Me Kate, the Petruchio and Katerina characters are former lovers, forced into a production of Taming of the Shrew. And this is a clever way to defend Petruchio's behavior to Katerina, since here they present the violent squabbling as all part and parcel of a comedy of remarriage. With divorce becoming more and more accepted, the comedy of remarriage was a popular one in the 1940s and 50s, and Kiss Me Kate is one of its greatest examples. The songs are also wonderful, and they're by Cole Porter, and if you don't know who that is, hang your head in shame and go look it up. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. There's singing in 10 Things I Hate About You also, and I'll admit the soundtrack is one of my five guilty pleasures. Uh, the movie features a very early performance by the sorely missed Heath Ledger as Patrick Verona, a standard for Petruchio, who improves on the original. As Kat Stratford, Julia Stiles is an equal improvement on her 16th century predecessor, and the supporting cast is a pretty fine group of turn-of-the-century teens. But if you prefer your Shakespeare bigger, longer, and in iambic pentameter, you have several options thanks to the play's enduring popularity. The first sound adaptation of any Shakespeare to film was a version of Taming of the Shrew with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, but it only uses a handful of lines from the original play. Shakespeare's script fares a little better in the hands of Franco Zeffirelli, but this film from 1967, to be honest, is a bit of a travesty in which Richard Burton plays Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor throws things. No mates for you unless you would have milder, gentler mold. If fate, sir, you shall have no need to fear. Such mating is not halfway to my heart, but if it were, doubt not my care should be to paint your face and use you like a fool. Oh. The film has its followers, and I know that, but I am not one of them. And while I appreciate the attempt to add moments between the texts to show that Katerina and Petruchio love each other, um, to be honest, I always thought the silence was just because neither could remember their lines. The Bianca Lucencio subplot is also a train wreck, probably because Burton and Taylor didn't like it when they weren't on screen. So, for really authentic Taming of the Shrew, some would tell you to turn to the 1980 version by the BBC that starred John Cleese, but I'm going to refer you to a much more recent production from 2012. Globe on Screen is a series of filmed versions of productions performed at the Globe in London, and their 2012 production of Taming of the Shrew, directed by Toby Frow, ignores all attempts to make Shrew a romantic comedy and favors instead the screwball farce. And this is a genre that really fits well with Taming of the Shrew. See here, Petruchio isn't the only madcap ruffian on stage, and the play's army of servants are a standout group of clowns who have such fun with the text that all the problems with Shrew seem to melt away. No, they can't fix any of the play's essential problems, but they don't really try to either, and that's a point in their favor. See, a lot of times when people produce Taming of the Shrew, I always feel like they're at war with the text, because they're trying to turn it into a romantic comedy when that's not what it is. And sometimes, people who perform Shakespeare change this play so much that I wonder if they secretly wish they were performing someone else. 
This production, on the other hand, performs the text warts and all, and I really appreciate that, because if you make the decision to produce Taming of the Shrew, you might as well produce Taming of the Shrew as God and Shakespeare intended. In the hands of Toby Frow and his army of clowns, this version of Taming of the Shrew becomes a confectionary delight. You know it isn't good for you, but you're having so much fun that even I, obnoxious critic that I am, didn't really care. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed in the show page at www.joelfishbane.net backslash unbarred. So that's it for Taming of the Shrew. Next up, Shakespeare tries to look at history with Henry VI, part one. Now, some scholars would consider the whole Henry VI trilogy as one great play, but I promised you 38 episodes, and I'm never going to get there by taking shortcuts. Also, I really do think it's worthwhile to examine the play separately, because in each one, Shakespeare has a different focus, and he's coming at the history from a different point of view. The best thing that is usually said about the Henry VI trilogy is that it gets you to Richard III, Shakespeare's first great history-slash-tragedy. Now, if you want to know whether I agree, well, you'll have to subscribe to this podcast. And while you're at it, why not rate it and leave a review in the iTunes store or somewhere else in the wilds of the internet? You can comment on SoundCloud or the show page, which you can find via the website at www.joelfishbane.net. And speaking of my website, hey, you know what? Why don't you go there to find out more about me and my work, including my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle in a world too small to contain them. Now, Shakespeare is all over this book. Henry V plays a major role, something which I'll talk about when we finally get to discussing that. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. Two plays down, 36 to go. Would any of you be interested in dating Katerina Stratford? <laughs> if she says your behavior is heinous, kick her right in the cordialatus. Brush up your Shakespeare, and they'll all kowtow. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.